Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Partly cloudy skies. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, Nadia Theodore, Consul General of Canada here in Atlanta, reflects on her time in the appointed post. We did a lot of work around Indigenous peoples that live in Canada and the whole reconciliation process and how important that is. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first, some major news for fans wishing to attend this year's Masters Golf Tournament in Augusta. They'll need to hold on to this memory for now. Many doubted we'd ever see it. But here it is. The return to glory. That's Tiger Woods' final putt in last year's Masters. Fred Ridley, chairman of Augusta National Golf Club, announcing today that the 2020 Masters Tournament will take place, yes, November 9th through the 15th, but without patrons or guests on the grounds. In a statement, Chair Ridley cited, quote, Throughout this process, we have consulted with health officials and a variety of subject matter experts. Ultimately, we determined that the potential risk of welcoming patrons and guests to our grounds in November are simply too significant to overcome, close quote. Now, WABE News will have more later today during All Things Considered, hosted by Jim Burris. Meanwhile, in related news, the Georgia Department of Public Health reported a new record number of deaths in one day from COVID-19. 137 deaths related to the virus were reported yesterday. Overall, the number of deaths reported is 4,351. And at this time, the Department of Public Health reports there are 222,588 cases since March, and the number of hospitalizations has reached 21,031. And of those, 3,832 are ICU admissions. Yes, there are a lot of numbers, but we're dedicated to keeping you up to date on what's taking place here in Georgia. And this is all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, to other news, we have winners from Tuesday's runoff elections. In North Georgia, a conservative candidate is making headlines after winning her primary race. Marjorie Taylor Greene, a supporter of the debunked QAnon conspiracy theory, earned her GOP nomination for Northwest Georgia's 14th Congressional District. Now, she's drawn national attention after calling newly elected Muslim members of Congress a, quote, Islamic invasion into the government, among other controversial comments. Now, in a tweet this morning, President Donald Trump praised Green, calling her, quote, a future Republican star. Now, in DeKalb County, former Clarkston Mayor Ted Terry won the Democratic primary for County Commission District Seat 6, and Terry replaces outgoing Commissioner Kathy Gannon. There is no Republican candidate currently on the ballot for November's race. And incumbent Melanie Maddox beat her opponent, Ruth Stringer, for the special election race for sheriff. Maddox took office last December when Sheriff Jeffrey Mann stepped down. 
Meanwhile, in Fulton County, Mary Carol Cooney, she chairs the county's board of elections. She said she was pleased with the way things went on Election Day. Now, she did acknowledge some voters saw delays in receiving their absentee ballots by mail. This seems indicative of problems with the post office that we've been hearing about in a variety of ways. We're going to look at that very closely to make sure that that is not an issue for the November election. As for the results in Fulton, two incumbents lost their races. In the race for sheriff, incumbent Sheriff Ted Jackson lost to Patrick Labatt, and Labatt won with 58% of the votes. And now, after more than 30 years, Fulton County also has a new district attorney. Paul Howard, the incumbent, earned just 26% of the vote, losing to his former deputy, Fonnie Willis, who earned 73% of the vote. And Fonnie Willis becomes the first woman elected as Fulton County District Attorney, and she joins me now. Fonnie Willis, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. When you addressed supporters last night and you made the following declaration, you said, quote, you have my word during my tenure as district attorney in Fulton County. We will be a beacon for justice and ethics in Georgia and across the nation. That's what you told your supporters last night. I stand by it this morning. Longtime Fulton District Attorney Paul Howard conceded. Have you spoken with him at all? No, ma'am. You plan to speak with him? Um, I certainly will welcome a call. I think at some point that it's going to be important that we have a conversation about the transition of the office. I at least need to know where you know they put certain things. And so <laughs> I am hopeful that that conversation is going to take place. Um, but I am sure he, like I, had a very long day yesterday. And um, it would not surprise me if that conversation did not take place maybe till next week. As you campaign, you talked about ethics and transparency. It was a part of your platform. How do you begin to work internally within the department before then you before you set any other priorities? Um, well, the reality is this. Um, I get to come in and build my staff. People that are employed by the district attorney's office work at the pleasure of the district attorney. And so at least for my, you know, I'm going to have what we call executive deputy district attorneys. I, I've already done my org chart. I'll have three of them, and they'll be handpicked from me. And then there will be deputies that are over certain divisions, and I will certainly have input put in those. Um, the beauty of me is I've been an attorney for 24 years. I've been an attorney for 24 years in this community. I have a lot of relationships with a lot of people. I've watched a lot of great, awesome, amazing prosecutors leave that office. I also intend to bring some defense attorneys that I know have great worth ethics and high moral standards to the office. I truly believe we'll be able to attract talent from all over the nation. But make no mistake about it. Um, should we make a mistake in our hiring of someone and they do not display those policies, uh, we'll wish them well on the rest of their career. But they will not serve my community and not do it in a way that is ethical. Well, based on that, how do you begin to build community trust and at the same time ensure due process? And especially when it comes to law enforcement, those individuals that are involved in allegations of misconduct, even uh, criminal conduct. Um, well, the reality is this. I, I tell people that uh, the best thing about me is I am who I say I am. The worst thing about me is I am who I say I am. Um, I intend to do it one case at a time based on looking at the facts and looking at the evidence and then making the decision that is based on those two things alone. The good thing about me, Ms. Scott, is I don't know the rich and famous. I don't have ties to the political infrastructure here. 
I'm just going to do the job. That's all I ever wanted to do. And trust if an officer, when we look at the facts of the case, when we look at the law, when we look at the evidence, if he has violated it, then he will be charged with a crime. It's very simple to me. At the same time, if when we look at that same information, it does not bear out a crime, I am going to be the person with the courage to tell the community, I'm sorry, you know, this probably hurts because it hurts any time someone is hurt in our community, even if the officer is in the right. But we're going to make that call, and I'm going to do it transparently. You know, I think you and I talked at length before, and I'm going to put these cases on the website so someone can click on. And I'm going to stand by my decisions because they're going to be based on those two things and not based on some backdoor deals and not based on relationships. Will you keep some of the initiatives that D.A. Howard had implemented, especially around the, the committee that was reopening cases and, and examining evidence, and then they had a, a, community, a community involvement with that as well? Will you keep that initiative? I'm definitely going to keep on what you're referring to now is called the uh, Conviction Integrity Unit. Mm-hmm. I always thought it was interesting that the convictions we would have been looking at would have been for 24 years under his administration. But um, I hear cries that there are some cases that people possibly were wrongly prosecuted. I think that it's an excellent idea. And, you know, I, I don't have any ego in this. I'm just trying to do what's right for our community. That, to me, seems like a wise idea. And I definitely plan to not just keep that idea, but to make it grow. When you are sworn in and you become Fulton County's district attorney, obviously there's a high, there's several high-profile cases. The most recent one involving the, the shooting death of Rayshard Brooks. I know you haven't had time, or have you had time, to even think about how you want to approach that? I'm very concerned about the Brooks case. I, do, I have not looked at the evidence or the facts in that case, and so I don't have a decision on to whether there should be charges brought or not charges brought in that case. But I'm very concerned about that case. I said it through my campaign trail. It wasn't just for like a campaign whistle. I am very concerned about my office's ability to try that case. I know that the defense attorneys in that case have already filed for a recusal of the district attorney and a recusal of that office. Um, And also I believe that they are rightfully probably gonna move for a change of jurisdiction. I am not sure how the defendant or the the accused golf could ever get a fair trial when the sitting district attorney literally put the case on his television commercials that ran for weeks, put it on his radio ads, gave a press conference that was seen worldwide and then shared on Twitter. Um, I am not sure that the citizens of Fulton County are going to be the ones that get to decide that case. And I, I think that that is shameful that that is the state that we are in. Um, But everyone who comes through the criminal justice system has to have a fair trial. And so that's now gonna be in the eyes of a judge. Um, I'm gonna have to see when we look at everything that is done, it's even a a motion we will contest. Um, That's not to say that we're not contesting him being prosecuted. I want the people that are listening to understand is would he be prosecuted in Fulton County if Fulton County has now been just saturated with information about that case that is disparaging to the charged person. The law does not allow for prosecutors to do what he did. Um, I I don't know how the bar does not reprimand him. I kind of believe that everyone has been standing back waiting for this election to happen, but I cannot imagine that he would not be severely reprimanded by the bar of Georgia 
for participating in such unethical conduct. Well, you have, the people have spoken, as you've been saying, you are now elected. So now some of the pressure and the heat comes on you. What do you say to the community that says, well, sounds like you're already saying that maybe through their lens, justice will not be served. Um, I, I very much hope that justice will be served in not just that case, but in every single case. But I am not um, hired. The people did not elect me to be an emotional being. They, to me, resoundingly said that we want a DA that will look at the facts, will look at the evidence, and give us justice. What I am telling you as a lawyer, just as a lawyer, is that the DA did things that were wrong. <laughs> and the fact that he did things, when DAs do things that are wrong, it has impact that is negative on cases. And I am concerned about that case, and I said that throughout my campaign, and I would be less than honest if I did not say that to you. I hope that I will get an opportunity to look at the Georgia Bureau's investigation report, to look at the report of the district attorney, and to bring forth the right charges. But I'd be crazy to not think that because of his actions, it's not going to have an impact on the case. And he really just didn't give fodder to the defense attorney. To me, some days I was watching it, wondering, was he working you know, for them? Because the things he were, was doing was so harmful to the case. I think that he put the, the pain and the hurt of the Brooks family behind his own agenda to get reelected. And I quite frankly think that's disgusting and shows a lack of integrity and was really what I was trying to show the community all along. The, the case has been hurt. That's just the bottom line. His actions hurt justice for that family. And it's not to say that it's insurmountable, but he sure put up roadblocks and hurdles that had no place being there. When it's official and you have an opportunity to possibly address the entire department, maybe it'll be virtually, what will be your message about the culture, the professionalism, and what you expect out of the district attorney's office in Fulton County? Oh, it is time for a change. The community has called for a change, and business as it used to be done is now over. We are not going to be an office that brags about being able to charge people in 45 minutes, as my um, predecessor in the last VA did. We are going to be an office that always seeks justice with compassion and treats everyone that we touch with dignity, whether that is a victim, a witness, or a charged person. Um, and anyone who cannot abide by that should probably look for new employment. Fonnie Willis will be sworn in as Fulton County's next district attorney. Ms. Willis, thank you for taking the time on such short notice. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U.
Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The announcement came in a text message. It read this, quote, Joe Biden here, big news. I've chosen Kamala Harris as my running mate. Together with you, we're going to beat Trump, close quote. A historic moment, yes. California Senator Kamala Harris is the first black woman to be selected as a major party's vice presidential candidate. And you may recall just the second black woman ever elected to the U.S. Senate. So how will the Democrats' ticket of Biden and Harris hold up to Trump and Pence here in Georgia, a state that the Democrats have not won since Bill Clinton? Well, joining me now with his analysis is Atlanta-based political strategist Fred Hicks. Fred, welcome. Thank you. Really glad to be here. What an exciting day. Okay, first question. Any surprise that Biden's pick was Senator Kamala Harris? No, you know, I think it was the smart pick. Um, you know, having vetted 20-plus different people, uh, senators, governors, legislators, foreign police chiefs, um, I think when it came down to it, he made the right decision. Someone who has a national platform already, someone who has a national following, someone with whom he is familiar, and, uh, and honestly, someone who's ready to um, excite the base from the very beginning. So you don't have to worry as much about persuasion and go right into the GOTV aspect of this game. I want to go back to some months ago when Biden made it clear, he made the announcement that he would pick a woman of color. And for some strategists, they said that could probably come back to hurt him. So he had to stick with that promise. Yeah, I think the promise was to to nominate a woman um, and the expectation, particularly given uh, how South Carolina turned around, everything for him is that that would be a woman of color, a black woman. Um, and so I think, number one, it was a very bold declaration at the time. Um, because there was a lot of pressure to look at someone like a Cuomo um, and, and other people who whose profile was on the on the rise. Um, I think it's very telling that he kept his word. And that's very promising. Um, and I think number three, going through this, it really allowed the country to see that there are a number of talented black women um, in politics um, and not just the traditional people that we think of, uh, people who had to necessarily be attached to Obama from 2008, but that the bench is deep. I mean, you have a lot of talented people, whether you're talking about here in Georgia, you're talking about Val Demings, you're talking about Karen Bass. I mean, we saw some names that just were not common commonly known, even within political circles, that I, I, I appreciate the process giving them an opportunity to shine and people to see their talents and learn their name. And of course, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms' name was among the mix, as well as former State House Minority Leader Stacey Abrams. Moving forward now, when you look at that Biden-Harris ticket here in Georgia, how do you see this playing out? What's the strategy here for the Democrats and the Republicans? Well, given that Georgia is a swing state, and I think there's a recognition on the on the part of Team Biden that you need a governing body, you know, something that Obama didn't necessarily think a lot about in 2008. Um, so I understand there are two Senate seats here. It makes the selection of Harris, I think, all the all the wiser. She has spent a lot of time here, whether it was stumping for Mayor Bottoms when she was running for mayor, um, or throughout the whole process last year. <clears throat> she has a lot of deep ties to the Metro Atlanta area, so. Um, I think it should be very beneficial to Ossoff and to Warnock. I think that you'll also see, um, given that, you know, candidates, Democratic candidates come to Atlanta all the time, 
we have a real opportunity to protect the, the legislative gains that we picked up in 2018 when Stacey was on the ballot. So this is, for Georgia, this has uh, multiple benefits, um, both from the state house where we're trying to take the house back all the way up through the, the Senate election. So this is, this is a good move, a good day for Georgia. Um, obviously, you know, you would love to have uh, a Stacey Abrams or a Mayor Bottoms, you know, a Georgian there. But I think having Senator Harris is a, um, is a very good look for Georgia. But it wasn't until the midterms of 2018 that the Democrats really did put a little bit of extra money and resources into Georgia because we hadn't seen that in such a long time. You saying that come November or leading up to November, you're going to even see more? Absolutely. You know, what's interesting about that statement, Rose, is you're right. The party, the national party and the state party really didn't put a whole lot. It was the individual efforts of someone like Senator Harris and Senator Booker and people in that 17 election when you had Keisha versus Mary, who really decided to make uh, Atlanta ground zero and to hold this in, in Democratic hands that we started seeing things happen. So really before 2018, through the individual efforts of those, particularly of those two, Booker and Harris, they started putting Georgia on the map, and then they and they started attracting a lot of attention, a lot of resources to it. So let's get outside of the Atlanta region, which traditionally, historically, has been has voted heavily Democrat. And again, it's the same strategy. How do you pick up those Democratic votes in the other 150 counties that Republicans really have strong ties in? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you look at places like Chatham where you have um, some very competitive stuff going on there, the DA race. Um, you look at you look at Richmond, look at what's going on in Macon Bibb and the movement over there. Uh, you look at what's going on in southwest Georgia. There are a lot of emerging uh, pockets of, of Democratic support. you got to remember, and we talk about this all the time on your show, we're not talking about a 5% swing or 7% swing. We're really talking about a half a point to one point making the difference into whether or not Georgia is blue or Georgia is red. And so it's a little bit here, a little bit there. So to me, uh, when I look at it, I look at places like Douglas. I look at places like Henry. I look at places like Cobb that are just, uh, that are, not only are they flipped, but the margins are growing. I also look at places like Clayton County. And I look at, again, I look at a bib and along 16 going over to Chatham. And you see, you know, 5,000 new Democratic votes here, 10,000 new Democratic votes there. And so seeing that, that's how you cobble together. So this is not about, okay, getting 18 Democratic counties and trying to get every single vote that you can out of that, and the other 141 Republicans just kind of holding on. Now this is a battle on the edges here and there. Well, speaking of edges, though, Fred, for the Republicans, they may have that same strategy where they say, look, let's try to get those few points really on the, out, on the outskirts of Atlanta, which, of course, are the suburbs. And you look at what's happening. I'm sorry. Yeah, which, which is why the Harris election was so important. Because again, holding on to those gains that Democrats made in 2018 uh, was absolutely critical. And people like me were really concerned without having someone like a Stacey Abrams on the ballot. What do you do in the suburbs? Do the suburbs swing back the other direction? But I think having someone like Harris, someone who's unapologetically, you know, woman, female. Uh, but now, what does that mean when you say that? What does that mean when you say un- unapologetically woman, female? Where are you going with that, Fred? Because national politics tends to consume you and try to force people into a cookie-cutter approach and not allow you to – and it, it, it de-emphasizes individualism under the name of the, under the, name of the um, 
of the of a collective or of how of how national strategies feel like things should be. And so someone like Senator Harris has the freedom to be exactly who she is. And as a matter of fact, is we need her to be exactly who she is. That is an expert litigator, one who's not afraid to make a case and make it strongly and expertly. Um, and then also at the same time, talk quite honestly about being a mom, being a wife. You know, and, and, and the full dynamic, right? That I'm not just a candidate. I am a woman. I'm a person. You think that plays well for the white suburban woman voter? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, absolutely. absolutely it does. Um, especially in this era of COVID, you know, because we cannot afford literally or figuratively to do things the way that we've been doing them before. And so authenticity is more appreciated. And I think outside the box, when you look at what's going on in, in Cherokee County, right, where you have the a whole school school that's closed down for two weeks now mm-hmm. due to COVID, you know, that a week and a half ago, they were very proud of everything they were doing. And so the reality, reality is overtaking politics in many respects and to the point that you can't deny what's happening in front of us. And so, yeah, we absolutely need that. Speaking of COVID, that leads us into the issues, the platforms that both parties will focus on. Will COVID-19, will this pandemic be that primary issue that both parties are going to drive home to get their base to support them? I think so. I think so. I mean, that's why you see uh, Trump working so hard to have something out by October um, when this Operation Warp Speed thing that he has going on. And I think you see this is exactly why Democrats are trying to make the argument up and down the line uh, on everything from a vaccine to um, to stimulus checks to to long term stability to masks and all of this. So, yeah, I mean, COVID COVID is is the battle for 2020. And Fred, finally, as we wrap up, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and look look into your Fred Hicks political strategist crystal ball. Uh, If it's not too early, you think that Georgia Blue, red, purple, I've heard that word, a swirly mix. (laughs) Where is Georgia now and where will it be, you think, in November? I think right now it's a swirly mix, and I think it's still to be determined what's going to happen in November. There's a lot between now and then, and it's interesting to see how this thing rolls out. Does President Trump come to Georgia, you think, or Vice President Mike Pence? Yeah, Absolutely. They'll spend a lot of time here, Um, all, all four candidates uh, or all four persons. So Trump, Pence, Biden and Harris will spend significant amounts of time in Georgia and both for many purposes and to try to rally the vote because you need with these two Senate seats out here. Um, you need these seats. You need to uh, you need to win Georgia to win the White House. And there's just it, it's it's amazing and fun to see Georgia at really at the epicenter of national politics. And then, by the way, you know, this will uh, this will have immediate implications because we roll right from this into the reelection for uh, for Kemp. And so these same issues, when you talk about covid, you talk about economics and all of that are, are going to be huge mm-hmm. January 6th and January 22nd and February of next year. So this is uh, so immediately, you know, we will turn to you know, what happens with Stacey Abrams, what happens with all these other things out there. So we're we're not at the end of a cycle. We're really probably right, right smack in the middle of it. Does Stacey Abrams get back in for another gubernatorial race, Fred? I believe so. I mean, she passed up on a lot of opportunities this year for that. 
Atlanta-based political strategist Fred Hicks, is always good talking to you. You're the only person I know that uses the word fun <laughs> for <laughs> an election season. But yeah. Oh my gosh. That's it's what you folks do. That's what your people do. You love it. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks Fred. For All right. Take care. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. A few years ago, Nadia Theodore was appointed Council General of Canada here in Atlanta. In fact, during one of our many conversations, yes, on this program, I asked the Honorable Nadia Theodore about her appointment. I was honored. Yeah. I was honored to be asked to serve my country as the most senior representative in a region, um, yeah, I was I was honored. I was honored. I was asked by my minister of foreign affairs, Christian Freeland, mm-hmm. um, and confirmed by my prime minister, Prime Minister Trudeau, mm-hmm. and I I was honored. And I am truly, truly pleased and happy to be here in the southeast representing Canada. Well, she's leaving Atlanta and headed to the private sector, but before all that happens, we get to have one last conversation. Welcome back to the program, the Honorable Nadia Theodore. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me, Rose, once again. So I remember reading one of your commentaries, and you start out by saying, quote, My first year as Canada's representative in the southeastern United States has been exhilarating. That's what you wrote. It was exhilarating. Yeah. I have to say, and I have to say that all three years have been exhilarating. It has been a whirlwind. I mean... I'm trying not to take it personally, but I will mention to people that I arrived in a hurricane mm-hmm. and I'm leaving in a pandemic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I don't I don't know what Georgia and the Southeast USA is trying to tell me, but <laughs> it has been exhilarating in more ways than one, indeed. Yeah, well let's begin with the pandemic because the entire planet, in a sense, is dealing with this pandemic. What do you make of this? Yeah, you know, For me, it has been an interesting few months because, as you say, the entire globe is really dealing with uh, an unprecedented and for most people, a a situation that could not have been anticipated Mm -hmm. on the scale that we have been dealing with, right? I think that in late February, early March, when we all, well, many of us were able to uh, shelter in place and, and work and live from home, we thought it would be a few weeks. Mm-hmm. And here we are a few months later. And from where I sit, living in a country that is not my home country, but representing one of the most important relationships in the world, what the pandemic has really taught me is that those relationships that you build over time between and among people and between and among countries is so very important. Mm -hmm. And the importance of it has been demonstrated during the pandemic, right? It is because of the Canada-US ties that our two economies have been able to have access to PPE, during this pandemic for a sustained amount of time. It is because of the great relationships that we have built 
across Canada and the United States that although our border is closed to all non-essential travel, mm -hmm. critical trade is still flowing between our two countries. Um, it is because of those relationships. And so if there's one silver lining of the pandemic, it is that the relationships that we have built and that I have been proud um, and privileged to be a part of building and maintaining have really demonstrated their worth over the past few months. Let's talk about the impact the pandemic is having and could have when we talk about trade and, and particularly on the global landscape, because we've had so many conversations before about United States and Mexico, but through your lens on a global scale, do you, how do you, uh, what's been your takeaway from how this pandemic has had an impact on, on trade? Yeah. You know, I, I would say that we don't know yet, right? We really don't know what the effects of global trade are going to be due to the pandemic. What we know in the short term is that it has really um, made businesses and corporations uh, really take a close look at their supply chains. I mean, we know that mm -hmm. um, from the very beginning that companies were beginning to realize what trade policy wonks and supply chain experts um, were telling them for years and years. And what we knew from years and years that while absolutely you have to drive efficiencies in pricing, it is also very important to have a diverse a, a diverse um, supply chain mm -hmm. that you can draw from and that reshoring some of your supply chains, bringing those closer to home can also be beneficial as we're seeing right now during, during a pandemic. But the true effects, the long-term effects on global trade really have yet to be seen. And you and I had so many conversations uh, leading up to what was then a proposed new United States and Mexico-Canada agreement. It, it took some time to get there. I remember you telling me on this program you were very optimistic that it would get done. There was a period where there was a, a little bit of tension and some unkind words being traded. But we got there. The three nations got there. Uh, did everyone get what they wanted through your lens, you think? No. Yeah. And that's the whole point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the whole point of a negotiation is that not everybody gets exactly what they want, right? Um, that is why it's a negotiation. And that is why at the end of the day, what we can hope for and what I believe that Canada, the United States and Mexico did achieve is everybody getting what was most important in order to support their businesses, the growth of their businesses, and therefore the growth of their economies, and therefore the prosperity of the people in their countries. All three parties got that. Well, let's shift for a moment. Let's talk about the prosperity of the people, because as you know, also, not just here in this nation, but we saw the global effect of protests and rallies in support of equity and you know, com combating systemic racism and all these other tentacles tied to that, that for some folks didn't know, apparently didn't know existed until the George Floyd uh, cell phone video. What do you make of that in, in this time here in the United States, but just in, in Canada and around the world? There was sort of this naughty, I guess, this this 
either reckoning or awakening for uh, what do you make of that? Listen, I, I have to I have to say that I agree with you 100 percent. And I think it's important to underscore all jokes aside that the awakening is really for some people. Right. For you and me, Rose, um, and for people that look like you and me, um, this was really a continuation of something that we have known to exist, not just in the United States, not just in Canada, but around the world. Right. <laughs> Where. Um, where, where, where black people exist and live. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, 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 I and, and for me, it's interesting because I see the protests and the, and the demonstrations and the marches that continue today, right? Not getting as much media attention because um, they're largely peaceful. Um, but I see that as, a part of a global movement of people that are becoming weary of a promise that was made to them of prosperity and a promise that was made to them of a life that was better and is better than their parents and grandparents mm -hmm. that for many don't see being realized. And I say that because I think that the, the link to global trade and, and to what I do as my day job um, is, is a big one. It's a huge one. And I said this, I've said this before when we have spoken, Rose, and, you know, my, my government at home truly believes that that promise that we make to our people about prosperity about creating better jobs and better lives for themselves and their children through trade mm -hmm. is one that we have to be very intentional about delivering on. How do you do that? Because if we're yeah. going to talk about equity and, and racism on the global front as it relates to trade, I mean, that's a, <laughs> I feel like there should be another summit, a global summit for that in itself. Well, that's exactly that's exactly right. And, you know, to answer your question directly, how do we do that? It is by a step-by-step -step approach that is intentional about taking the gains of trade. And there are many, right? We know that it is because of global trade that economies are richer than they were before we used to trade. We, we know that to be, to be true. Um, the growth of economies is real because of trade. The choice that consumers have because of trade at prices that they can afford is real. But we have to be intentional at the domestic level. And this is domestic governments. This is the job of domestic governments to ensure that the distribution of that wealth, the distribution of that economic growth, of that prosperity, is done in a way that more everyday people, more people see the benefits that have accrued at a national and global level, plain and simple. But, you know, someone will and, say, OK, well, Council General, understand is we know about the whether it's a big box store or a huge apparel company or a huge manufacturing firm that gets its products from a developing nation or uses the labor from 
developing nation and it, it doesn't trickle back down to the, the people that we're talking about. That prosperity doesn't trickle down to those people. You can talk all you want about conscious capitalism, but at the end of the day, how do you get those big corporations to understand the value of the people who are really doing the labor and all of this and, and making sure that that prosperity does trickle down on them? Or is it the government's responsibility to make to hold them accountable? Yeah, and I, and I think it's both, right? I don't think it's binary. I don't think it's an either or. And I think that we have seen that play out, right? Over the past few years, we mm-hmm. have seen big multinational corporations, not, I'm not naming anyone in particular, um, but big multinational <laughs> corporations and even and even small companies, sure. right? Be very intentional about and very energetic <laughs> about transparency around their supply chain. Mm-hmm. And and that is due in part, in large part, not to governments imposing um, uh, policies, regulations, uh, or, or, or anything of the sort, but consumers raising their hands and stomping their feet mm-hmm. and saying, I want to know that what I am buying, don't mind paying, don't, you know, don't mind paying a little bit more. Um, but also want to get value for money. Mm -hmm. But I also want you to be transparent about your supply chains. I want to know where my product has been and is going. I I think that that's very important. And we, and we have seen that. And I, and I think that it's a joint responsibility of public and private. And we see this, these public private partnerships, right? Mm -hmm. We see governments teaming up with multinationals um, and, and other businesses to develop corporate social responsibility to develop sustainability projects. Um, we That is certainly the case in Canada, mm-hmm. um, certainly the case in many places around the United States and many places around the globe. Will you miss doing some of the, what you've been doing here in Atlanta? And I will. I will miss it. And I have to say, you know, I am, I'm proud of Team Awesome, I call them, you know, my the, the, the office here in Atlanta. I'm proud of what we've been able to achieve. We did a lot of work um, around um, educating people across the Southeast about the Canada-US relationship. It wasn't just about trade. Mm -hmm. We did a lot of work on anti-human trafficking. We spoke about it here on this show as well, Rose. We did a lot of work around Indigenous peoples that live in Canada and the whole reconciliation process and how important that is. we did a lot to bring to the Southeast USA this idea of building relationships between Black-owned businesses in Canada and Black-owned businesses across the Southeast USA. Um, we had BPT, BPTN, which is the Black Professionals in Tech Network, mm-hmm. a Canadian organization that launched here in Atlanta just a, a few a few months ago, a couple months ago. Um, that we played a significant role in. So I'm I'm proud of what we did. I think that we moved the needle and we demonstrated that the Canada-U.S. relationship, and especially in the Southeast, goes beyond the usual narrative, um, that voices and faces of that relationship that perhaps before people didn't know existed (laughs) were showcased a little bit more. And, And I'm proud of that, and I will miss that. I will miss being able to continue that work. Um, but I'm hopeful that it will continue even in my absence. As you reflect on not just your time here in Atlanta, 
but your entire journey, where does being a council general, where's the notch in that career path? Is that high up? It is very high up. And you know, what I can say is beyond just being a consul general, um, being a senior diplomat for my country, serving here in Atlanta is high up because, Mm -hmm. and I've said this, I think even to you personally, Rose, and to many others, it is really in Atlanta that I found, that I feel like I found my voice as a leader. Um, You know, this, this, and I'm, I could cry actually. It's, unbelievable um (laughs) this city um has given me so much professionally but also personally Mm -hmm. and I will be back I know I will be back um and you know the the one thing the one regret I will say that I have as I leave to get back to a little bit of serious here the one regret that I will have is that I'm leaving Atlanta and once again we see that our two countries are back at it with regards to tariffs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That is my one regret. I have to say Rose, that I am so annoyed that I am leaving. And once again, our dear American friends have slapped on or will be slapping on. There's still time to reverse it. The 10% tariff, right? 10% tariff, unwarranted, completely unnecessary, 10% 10% tariff on aluminum on aluminum from mm-hmm. Canada. That is my one regret. <laughs> and you can change that for me because we have until August 16th to, to have it reversed. So let's let's all let's, let's dive into that realistic. for a moment. Well, let, let, before oh, we okay. get out of here, let's dive in there for a moment because through your lens, is this really about fairness and equity in, in trade or is this just really through your lens some political silliness? Listen, I don't know what it is, but I can tell you that it is not fairness. Mm-hmm. It is completely unwarranted, completely unnecessary. Um, you know, we spoke about this the first time around. Canadian aluminum does not undermine U.S. national security. If anything, it strengthens it. You know, we have a very integrated market. And listen, again, as I say to people all the time when I talk about these things, this is not world according to Nadia. You don't have to just listen to me. Um, you know, the, the, the association, um, the U.S. Aluminum Association themselves, so the organization that represents aluminum in the United States, not Canadians, right, not Canadian aluminum people, mm-hmm. companies, American aluminum uh, companies have come out very strongly to say that these tariffs are, are unnecessary mm-hmm. and unwarranted. And they do they they oppose any tariff measures uh, placed on Canada, which is why um, I asked the question. Then is this really just some political, as we say, drama, just messiness? Yeah, you'll have to ask the people who are imposing the tariffs. I wish I could read their minds and tell you what it's about, but I can tell you what it's not about based on the facts, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not about national security. Uh, And it's not about anything that would be warranted or acceptable. It really, it leaves Canada also with no choice but to impose dollar for dollar retaliatory tariffs as we had to do the first time around. It's the back and and forth and it's the same thing that did with China. So it's, yeah, it's, I think you've answered the question. Yes, it is, it is, it is, it is unfortunate to say the least, Mm -hmm. because really what happens as we saw from the last time around is that 
it raises the costs, going back to what we were talking about before, Rose. It hits the consumer in a wallet. Absolutely. It raises costs for everyday Americans and Canadians. Absolutely. But Americans in particular. Mm -hmm. um, In a time when what we really should be doing is supporting our workers, supporting our companies, celebrating the USMCA, celebrating the fact that we have negotiated an agreement that creates stability in the market, which is needed ever more so than than before during this global pandemic. Hmm. Um, and so my, my hope is that those of us in the business community in particular will raise their voices very loudly in the next few days um, to be able to reverse this before it comes into, in, in, into effect. And we shall see. I know where you're headed. Tell our listeners where you're going. I am going to work for a Canadian iconic brand, uh, Maple Leaf Foods, and I will be their senior vice president of global government and industry relations. So I am trading in one Maple Leaf for another, as my friends are joking me about. Yeah. So I'll be in Toronto and Ottawa. Um, And yeah. You mentioned you found your voice here in Atlanta. What will you miss? the most besides coming on closer look with rose scott well besides that because i'll be back i mean listen yeah. you <laughs> um i'll miss the people mm-hmm. I'll, I'll miss listen I, I will admit i will i will miss the work representing my country has been an amazing experience but more than ever beyond work i will miss i will miss the people i will miss the people and the relationships and i know that everybody says this before they leave an assignment um, but this is, has been more than an assignment for me. And so I really, truly hope that my path, my path crosses uh, with so many of the people that I have come to, to, to know and love in the city and beyond across the Southeast USA. Uh, and I truly, I truly hope that I, that I will be back. Yeah. Nadia Theodore, Council General of Canada here in Atlanta for a few couple more weeks. Best of luck to you. Thanks so much for always being so accommodating and appearing on this program. We really appreciate it. We'll have to come to, we'll have to do a show in Toronto, I guess, whenever we're allowed to we, come in. <laughs> we will have to do a show in Toronto and in Ottawa. You got it. You got it. <laughs> Take care. Take care, Rose. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us. 
WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.